0: Thank you to our generous underwriters here on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information, and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, July 19th, we're studying Psalm 69, David prays with trust in the Lord's salvation as his enemies and afflictions threaten to sink him deeper into the mire. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Caleb Adams. Pastor Adams serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, welcome back to Sharp Ryan.
1: Thanks very much. Good to be with you again.
0: So let's talk a little context on Psalm 69. What should we know as we prepare to look at this text?
1: Yeah, I think a few things are helpful as we get started. Um, some of this with just the Psalms in general, and then particularly Psalm 69, it's kind of a, a unique one, stands out among the 150 that that God's given to us. Um, one of the questions I think you ask at the beginning of any study of any Psalm would be, what genre are we looking at? And um, some of them are pretty easy to categorize, others are maybe a little tougher. And in the case of Psalm 69, we've got a little bit of everything, I think. Um, it's mostly a, a lament psalm. As you said in the introduction, this is David pouring out his heart to God um, as he finds himself in, in trouble, and he'll describe what that trouble looks like. Um, but we also have hints of imprecatory um, genre with a little excursus that he goes on and kind of toward the end of the psalm and um, certainly offers up some praise. And above all, I think it's very important to recognize from the start that the psalm is pointing us to jesus and is in reference to him Um, and we'll we'll hear his voice speaking uh, throughout Um, i think helping to set the context also you know you consider which of the five books of the psalter this is in. this is in book two and i I found a note i thought was helpful it's the psalms are kind of like a hymnal where sometimes you can see why they group certain ones together and sometimes you really have no idea but you're just glad they're all there and uh in this case uh, Psalm 69 comes toward the end of book two and seems to set off a little bit of a trilogy with Psalms 70 and 71 that, that also deal with some similar themes of shame and dishonor from enemies and things like that. And then Psalm 72 closes out book two, um, which ends with the prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended. And so, so Psalm 69 kind of sits right in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think paying particular attention to, the connection of Psalm 69 to Jesus and recognizing Psalm 69 as, as one of, one of the passion Psalms along with Psalm 22. Um, Where is Jesus in this Psalm? And Martin Luther, who of course saw Jesus everywhere in scripture, uh, saw that particularly here in Psalm 69 and says that this Psalm is, is speaking about him, about Jesus and about us at the same time. And it must be read with the most devoted love for Christ Um, and so uh, there's a a great book i'd recommend and i'd love to go into it um, in great detail but um, dietrich bonhoeffer has a little book on the psalms called psalms the prayer book of the bible just something that that i think is is helpful to put all these psalms in context and particularly relate them to christ Um, and then the kind of the final contextual introductory note i would say would be uh, the psalm 69's place in the new testament i was actually a little surprised in my study to discover that Psalm 69 is the third most cited psalm in the New Testament uh, after Psalm 22 and Psalm 110. And so as as one of those two passion psalms, it's it's very important uh, for the New Testament and uh, the story of faith that continues, uh, which David is a type of Christ. And uh, we see that seven of, of the verses in this psalm are quoted there. So wow. um, I think that's kind of setting the scene pretty well for us.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and I mentioned this to you before we started that, that I was surprised to hear that too. I I knew that Psalm 69 showed up in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 1 when they're talking about replacing Judas, and that's part of the reason we're looking at it right now. I did not realize it was so well quoted in the New Testament. So I'm looking forward to to studying it with you. It is a long psalm. We're looking at 36 verses today, so we're going to head Well, before we read the whole psalm, just briefly, let's talk about the superscription. We've got the choir master and of David. We've seen those things before. What about according to, as the ESV has it, according to lilies?
1: Yeah, so according to lilies, most scholars kind of assume that this would be the the tune to which the psalm would have been set, the musical notation. And it's interesting, actually, because this comes up also in in Psalm 45, for instance, which is described as a love song, it's often called a, a wedding psalm. And so there you have you know, this beautiful psalm about love and, and the love of God. And then, apparently, set to that same tune, uh, we have Psalm 69, which we're about to hear, is uh, quite a quite a different yeah. uh, context. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, I I really appreciate you pointing that out because I I do think that'll that that contrast perhaps. and we haven't studied Psalm 45, but just knowing that it's a love song and, and is almost a wedding scene, I think helps us consider these words as well. So let's let's read. this is Psalm 69. "Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute, persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. That is Psalm 69. Quite, quite the psalm, Pastor Adams. I, I, as I was reading it, I, I sensed some of those connections between this psalm and Psalm 22, as you were saying. And you, you certainly can see the passion of our Lord throughout. But then the, at the end, you get the, the resurrection that comes in as well, I think. So uh, let's let's start going through this. As you mentioned, we've got a tune, The Lilies, and it was the tune to a previous psalm that was a wedding, a happy psalm. This psalm does not start the same way, though.
1: No, it's, it's interesting. As you look at the structure of this psalm, David has these themes that he brings out and returns to a few different times and and he really starts out with this this very powerful plea for rescue and salvation and you mentioned the tune according to the lilies um the hebrew for that is al shosh anim and the psalm starts out uh, you know with david's plea save me Hoshiani." i mean there seems to be maybe even an intentional connection there whether or not they're similar sounds and it it does just from the get-go give us this contrast between the beauty of, of the lilies and God's creation and, and David's situation, because David does not describe himself as walking through a, a beautiful field of lilies, um, quite the opposite. He says he has water coming up to his neck. Um, he's being swept over by a flood. He has no foothold. Um, and uh, he's finding himself in this this desperate situation where his life is, is threatened. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting that the word for life that so often appears in Hebrew, nefesh, is used here as well. And, um, but here it's it's used in the sense of waters coming up to the neck. Since mm-hmm. life was considered to be in one's breath, sometimes this phrase is used and kind of calls to mind um, Jonah, you know, calling out of his distress as the floods not only sweep over him, but Jonah does say, you cast me into the deep. and The flood surrounded me. Makes us think of Hezekiah, perhaps, and uh, the book of Isaiah, which talks about the Assyrians coming in like a flood and passing on, reaching up to the neck. And of course, God is faithful to Hezekiah and the people of Judah. And that's as far as it goes. But we see David feeling very very overwhelmed, and uh, at the point of death, he feels.
0: So he's he's sinking down into waters, into flood, and, and at the same time, what's his experience? How does he describe it in verse three?
1: Yeah, he, he talks about how he's been, been crying out to the point of weariness. Uh, his throat is parched. It gives you the sense of somebody who's been praying and praying and praying with, with all of his heart and with everything that his voice can muster. And, and he's losing his voice. His eyes have grown dim, waiting for God as if he's looking off in the distance for God to appear and, and come to his rescue. And and it's not happening. And on the one hand, I think that's, that's very discouraging, but it also encourages us when we find ourselves in the same experience and we continue to pray and, and offer our requests up to god and they seem to go unanswered Uh, you notice that david here talks about that but what's he doing he's continuing to cry out with what voice he has left he's he's placing his hope in god he knows that that god's salvation is going to come and that conviction just seems to build throughout the psalm as as Mm -hmm. prayer does its work And, and we see from the very beginning here that the sufferings of jesus which are of course the ultimate answer to david's prayer waters up to the neck you know Jesus Christ on the cross experienced a, a drowning of sorts or his Nephish was was snuffed out um, yeah. Psalm 22 you know, gives gives the words for for what Jesus felt on the cross and uh, here in Psalm 69 we we get to see what you know a picture of what that experience mm-hmm. might have been like for him.
0: Yeah, I mean, the connection, I think, to Psalm 22 is is well made, that he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here we see what that's like for him as, as he undergoes it. The, the way that you talked about David's experience in praying the psalm, I think is was very helpful, that even as he... He has this sense that God isn't answering him, yet he's still praying. And, and the way you said it, I think, was that that's prayer doing its work. And I, I really appreciate that, because I do think that there are times in our own lives where if we were to pray like this to God, some some in, in piety, I think, in, in a certain sort of piety, we would say, well, I'm not going to complain to God. I know he answers my prayers. But to actually pray that to God—that's what David does, and and when we do that, I, I like the way you said it. That's prayer doing work on us, and so I mean I, that's just an encouragement for me, and I think for for all Christians, when you feel like this, go ahead and pray it. That's that's what you need to do, and I like the way you said it. Prayer then will do its work on you.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. There, are, I would say there are three levels on which to read this psalm. Uh, one would be what we might call the original context, where David um, is expressing an experience that he's had in his life and his suffering and, and his enemies and his pain. Um, we read it certainly in our own time, and we apply, you know, David's suffering to our own. We we join in David's suffering, if you will. And then, of course, the the most important um, perspective from which to read it would be from that of Jesus, because not only do we perhaps join in, in the sufferings of David, but we do very much join in the sufferings of Christ, and we see those sufferings here um, just so so perfectly laid out for us. Um, in the next few verses, um, we hear David complaining about how there are those who hate him without cause. We have kind of the the first indication of what this, this deep mire looks like, that he's been unjustly accused of something, and That despite his innocence, although not complete innocence, as we soon see, um, he's suffering without cause. And this is actually the first place in the psalm uh, that is explicitly cited in the New Testament. Jesus in John 15 quotes this verse, and he's talking about how the world has hated him. And so we as his disciples ought to expect the same treatment. And then he says, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me. Without a cause. And so as as Christians, we find in, in John fifteen that Jesus is saying, You too will experience this. You will share in my sufferings. So so what David's experiencing here, we experience as well, and, and we realize that it's it goes along with being a disciple of Jesus Christ who suffered for us. Hmm.
0: So we're already we're seeing the connection to the life of our Lord explicit quotes in the New Testament. That toward the end of verse four, as the ESV takes it, what I did not steal must I now restore? What what does that mean?
1: That's a good question. And um, one of the one of the things we could ask about it is, is it in fact a question? Mm-hmm. Um, the ESV takes it that way to try to make sense of exactly what David's saying here. Uh, but the Hebrew, um, I guess on the face of it, is not necessarily interrogative. It's not a question. It's more of a statement. And so mm-hmm. um, essentially what David is saying is, I, I'm now being forced to restore what I did not steal. And course connecting it to the passion of Christ, that's, that's yeah. what the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about. Uh, Jesus chose to right every wrong for which he was not responsible, but for which he became the responsible party for
0: us. Mm, right. Now as, as you think about the connection of Psalm 69 to the life of Christ, I've I've heard it said, and I've probably said it before myself, that one of the ways we should think about the Psalms is that these are the prayers that Christ himself uses, which makes is a very helpful way of reading the Psalms so often. But you come to a verse like verse 5, which says, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Putting that on the lips of Christ, now suddenly, well, wait a second, Christ didn't do any wrong. So if we think about the Psalms as the prayer book of Christ— how do we take a verse like sixty nine five?
1: I would say two things. One is that here David, in the original context, is confessing his sin, right. that he's not claiming to be completely innocent, even though he claims innocence in certain areas. Um, but on the lips of Christ, yeah, we might be tempted to say, well, of course, Christ never sinned, so this verse must not apply to him. Uh, but of course, the theology of the cross says that Christ, in fact, became sin hmm. for our sake. And so here... Christ is essentially confessing the sins of of humanity. Luther puts it really well. He says these testimonies of the Psalms are not the words of an innocent one. They are the words of the suffering Christ who undertook to bear the person of all sinners and therefore was made guilty of the sins of the entire world. So even Jesus in, in his praying of these Psalms gives voice to David's confession and to ours for our sake.
0: So we, we hear the Lord here praying this as the one who assumes all of our sin and makes us makes it his own for our sakes to make us the righteousness of God. As the the psalm continues forward, then uh, the word reproach becomes an important word as the the psalm goes on, the idea of, of shame and reproach. How do we see that moving into verses six through eight?
1: Yeah, David continues to develop uh, this theme, if you will, and to, to shed a little bit more light on what he's experiencing. Um he talks about shame and reproach being cast upon him. He's bearing this, um, he would say, unjustly, though he's not without sin. He doesn't deserve the treatment he's receiving from from those around him. And uh, he prays that that his shame that he's experiencing wouldn't lead others astray, um, mm. that those who hope in God would not be put to shame. Seeing David suffering in this way and and perhaps having no answer from God, he doesn't want them to to lose their faith. Um, he, talks, he talks about how this suffering has alienated him from, from those that he loves. He's a stranger to his brother, an alien to his mother's sons. Um, a lot of this psalm also reminds us of Job's experience. You know, Job didn't claim he was without sin, but he bore reproach and he was not really sure why. Um, and he was alienated from his friends, from his wife. And uh, of course, as we look to Jesus we see jesus experiencing this of course on the cross but even before he was considered crazy by his own family members Mm -hmm. Uh, john introduces you know this logos of god is coming into his own and and not being received Mm -hmm. Um, and so the the shame and and dishonor and reproach that david is experiencing uh, certainly points us to christ
0: yeah. So once again, we see Christ not only on the cross, but in his entire suffering, his state of humiliation. As sometimes we we talk about it in in the Catechism, that throughout his his time, from his incarnation all the way through his his death and burial, he is setting aside all of his divine powers. He has them, but he doesn't make use of them fully for the sake of salvation and so we we see that as you brought out even in his own ministry where he's rejected by his his brothers thought they think he's crazy we, we see that in Psalm 69. Uh, verse 9 that's another one as we're reading through it. I reckon I know this one. <laughs> so this is another one that shows up in the, the New Testament as well. take us into to verse 9.
1: Verse 9 is interesting because it has two parts as most verses in the Psalms do with Hebrew poetry and, and that style. Um, The first half of this is quoted in the the Gospel of John. The second half is quoted in Romans. And so uh, verse 9 is very unique in the Old Testament. Very few verses in the Old Testament are explicitly quoted in the New Testament. Verse 9 happens to be quoted twice in Mm. in different ways. So, of course, zeal for your house has consumed me. Um, Jesus himself doesn't apply that to himself in John chapter 2. What's interesting is... That after cleansing the temple, his disciples, who of course so often don't get it and don't perceive what the scriptures have spoken of Jesus, do in this case. Uh, they realize that uh, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They recognize in that particular act of Jesus a fulfillment of this prophecy. In David's case, it was likely he was likely saying something to the effect of, Lord, I have desire deeply to be in your presence, to honor you, to worship you in, in the tabernacle. And, and here's what I get for it. Um, I'm, I've been reproached for doing the right thing. And we Christians see that happen uh, throughout history to God's people, and we experience it sometimes ourselves. Um, but Jesus and in, in his perfect zeal for the Lord um, and for his temple um, of course, ends up becoming the temple that is destroyed and, and raised from the dead. And that leads us into the second part of the verse, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David's expressing the fact that that those who rebel against God, those who dishonor God, uh, have become his enemies as well. Mm. And uh, and then this is applied by by Paul to Christ um, in Romans 15, toward the end of his letter, where he's expounded the gospel in perhaps the most beautiful way anyone ever has (laughs) throughout all of history, um, begins chapter 15 by saying, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Mm -hmm. Jesus bore the rebellion against God that, that we are guilty of. He took all of that upon himself on the cross. Uh, Our reproaches against God uh, fell on Jesus. And, um, Jesus becomes the ultimate example of, of uh, bearing the the rebellion against God upon Himself.
0: Mm. You talked about the the zeal for your house and how that would apply to David. How how does the zeal for the Lord's house? How does that still apply to us as Christians today?
1: Yeah, well, I think in you know in David's case, he's talking about you know being in the presence of God, and he wrote so many psalms about that, of course, and. And then Jesus wants to make sure that, you know, to quote Jeremiah also, that the temple is a house of prayer and and Jesus in John 2, the theology there is, of course, pointing us to Christ as the temple. So what would zeal for God's house look like? Um, It would look like coming to the temple, Jesus Christ. And where do we do that? Of course, we would say one of the very best places you can do that in the primary place would be. Uh, through word and sacrament, and to come and, and worship with the people of God, to to hear the word of the Lord and, and to receive the gifts that he brings to us, um, to be zealous for that, and to be eager uh, to come and, and uh, worship with God's people and encounter Christ where he promises to meet us.
0: Mm, yeah, and in the context of Psalm 69 in David's life, it does seem that the zeal for the Lord's house while it does bring reproach, those who reproach the Lord reproach David as well, This zeal for the Lord's house continues to sustain him. I think that's part of the hope that is evident within Psalm 69 for David, certainly for our Lord Jesus Christ, and also for us then as Christians. Into, Into verses 10 through 12, we get more of the the matter of suffering that David has, has brought out before. He's talked about his eyes and his throat before. It seems we get a little more of that in verses 10 through 12. What else does David describe in his experience?
1: Yeah, it's interesting that the Hebrew here in verse 10, you know, it's translated by the ESV as, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. And the the ES or the, the Hebrew text actually gives us a little stronger sense. It literally says, when I wept, my soul away, as if all of his weeping has led to the the forfeiture of yeah. of his nephesh, you know, to which the waters had had risen. Um, it's just showing us the the depth of of David's suffering and and the nature um, with which he's seeking to deal with it um, includes fasting, wearing sackcloth, you know, kind of your. Your typical practices, spiritual practices, you might say, of, of mourning and crying out to God. But not only is he, you know, wearing sackcloth. Not only is he undergoing fasting. Those very things are adding to his pain because mm-hmm. uh, they're becoming the means of by which his enemies are mocking him. Mm-hmm. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate. The drunkards make songs about me. Even even those who have completely lost themselves to to strong drink or are you know, trampling david yeah. underfoot here um, it mm-hmm. reminded me of that that scene in the princess bride where buttercup's talking to the man in black and she doesn't know you know that it's wesley of course and she's describing her true love for him and and uh, he's making fun of her for it and mm-hmm. she says you mock my pain mm-hmm. and that's what's happening here not only is david being mocked or whatever else it may be. Um, but even the pain that he's expressing at that mockery is heaping on even more.
0: Yeah, yeah. We see that in other places in the Psalms where where the enemies of the people of God will mock them in their in their pain, and, and that always causes pain. But there is hope in the Lord. That's where we're going to see David turn. We're going to do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about Psalm 69 with Pastor Caleb Adams. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, July 19th. We're studying Psalm 69 with Pastor Caleb Adams. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon. Pastor Adams, prior to the break, we left off at verse 13. David turns back to the hope that he has in praying to God. You talked about prayer does its work on us. I think we see that in verse 13. What? How does David begin to move back toward a, a very hopeful prayer?
1: It's interesting. In 13, he starts, I mean, this is a turning point in the psalm. It's the psalm it's not the biggest turning point i would say that comes really kind of more toward the end but david returns to the hope that he has in in god coming to rescue him but you can sense that there's there's something a little different um his conviction of of god's salvation has has been growing if we want to put it that way Uh, this is the first mention of god's steadfast love his chesed his his faithful covenantal love toward his people Um, and he david recognizes that though he's been weary from crying out his throat is parched his eyes have grown dim um, nevertheless despite the urgency of his need he says to God at an acceptable time O God in the abundance of your hesed, of your steadfast love answer me in your saving faithfulness um, he's submitting himself to the Lord and, and to God's timing and he, he trusts that God is going to deliver him um, the stakes have not been lowered <laughs> and that becomes clear in in verses 14 and 15, some, some similar words are repeated again. We have the, the mire that he's sinking in, the flood sweeping over, um, the introduction of the pit, which you might even say ups the ante a little bit. Uh, this, this metaphor for uh, death is kind of closing over you entirely, um, but he knows that, that he has hope in God, and, and that comes through in the next few verses, 16 through 18, um, as he renews that plea again, answer me according to your steadfast love, which is good, according to your abundant mercy. Don't hide your face. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me. Redeem me. Ransom me. We have just these great gospel metaphors, you know, that David's just kind of throwing out there all all at once. Um, This is his trust. Uh, David knows that he is the servant of God, and he knows that, that that means that God is going to come and and draw near to him, even though he's seemed far away, and his eyes have grown dim looking for him. He knows God will draw near to him, will, will redeem him, will ransom him.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned that it's in this section that, for the first time, and I think it looks like it's at least twice here, David uses the Hebrew word "khesed," the the steadfast love, as it's often translated. Just just briefly, what is the importance of that Hebrew term, and the way David makes use of it here?
1: Well, you know, it, it's interesting. At, at our church here, we're doing. Um, a reading reading through the Bible in a year plan and encouraging our congregation and our and our school families to do that as well. And today uh, we read Psalm 89, which is written by Ethan the Ezrahite, and he talks about God's promise uh, to keep David on the throne and how wonderful a promise that is. And then he wrestles with the the apparent reality that maybe God's not keeping that promise. Um, but then you know of course it ends with with hopefulness that God will. Uh, God's has said his his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love, um, is God's promise that, that he will redeem his people, that he will keep his promises, that he will draw near to them and, and redeem them and, and ransom them. And of course, you know, as Psalm 69 points us to Christ in, in every single verse, uh, what yeah. better way for us to be reminded of God's steadfast love for us than, than the love of Jesus coming for us to rescue us and, and redeem us and ransom us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the said the steadfast love of the Lord is almost like a, the rock in the middle of this mire and flood, the Island that will provide safety for David. Now, as, as the Psalm continues then into verse 19, we come back to the reproach, the foes, what they're doing. And again, we see another picture of, of our Lord on the cross here. What do we see in, in verses 19 to 21?
1: Yeah. So, well, we have, um, I think it's notable that, that David says, you know, my reproach. I mean, earlier he said, you know, you know, my folly, Um, David recognizes there's nothing hidden from God. And he knows that that means that even his suffering is not hidden from God, though he's crying out with no apparent immediate answer. Um, He knows David's reproach and and his dishonor. And he knows how deep these wounds go for him. Um, David talks about how he has, no comforters, um, looking around for them, and he finds none. It makes us think of Jesus on the cross, as as he's all alone and uh, handles Messiah. Even connects that particular phrase in in verse twenty to the the crucifixion and the mockery of Jesus. Um, makes us think of Job, who said a very similar thing: "Miserable comforters are you all." Uh, but verse twenty one, of course, is very significant in the New Testament, and it holds the distinction of of at least being alluded to in all four of the gospels. Um, They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. David's using these as, as metaphors for um, inflicting extreme pain and anguish upon him. This is what his enemies are doing, but what David was offered in metaphor, Jesus was offered. In fact, you know, Jesus is actually given these things and, and all of the gospels recognize this. Um, and Matthew, and we actually have a couple potential references to this where they offer Jesus wine mixed with gall to drink at the beginning, and Jesus won't take it because he wants to to face his suffering with with all of his wits about him. Um, and then in you know later on in in chapter twenty seven he's given a sponge with sour wine, mark references uh, that same first offer, Luke, the same thing and and John is the most explicit about this, um, saying that Jesus said, explicitly to fulfill the scripture i thirst and then he receives a jar full of sour wine and uh, so we see a pretty explicit connection of what david's talking about here in psalm 69 with the suffering of jesus on the cross
0: so so far in psalm 69 we've seen david both pray for the lord's deliverance. Describe the suffering that he's enduring at the hands of his enemies. He's identified, you know, who these he's identified his enemies and the ways that they're really hurting him. Starting in in verse twenty two, David's prayer for the Lord's help becomes what is often labeled imprecatory or imprecations. He now asks the Lord to do something to his enemies. This is pretty common in the Psalms. I think it strikes Christians today as, wait a second, <laughs> what are <laughs> what is David praying about? Can he really do that? So before we we look at, in great detail at what the imp- implications are here, let's talk a little bit about that, Pastor Adams. How do we handle, just to read verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap, where David prays against his enemies very, almost specifically... How do we how do we deal with that?
1: Well, this is kind of the the classic challenge that we always run run against in the psalms. Is we hear these people of God saying things that we today would consider not very Christ like, and that of course is going to be the biggest question to answer is if this whole psalm is on the lips of Jesus, what about these verses? Right. And we can kind of do a little bit of a compare and contrast in some ways, uh, but these are challenging. Um, to the point that some Christians have said, you know, we really maybe shouldn't have these in our Bible or we should ignore them or we should condemn them. Um, I don't think that's the right approach. Um, these, you know, imprecatory sorts of um, sorts of words are, as you said, just all throughout the Psalms. It's, it's almost hard to, to page through the Psalms and not see at least some statement like this on, on every page. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are a few helpful things. And of course, we could have an entire series on imprecatory Psalms and and their theology and how we deal with them. But just a a few things that I think are helpful um, is that in the imprecatory Psalms and sections like this Psalm in particular, it's it's important to note that David is not seeking to enact vengeance himself. Uh, He is turning his enemies over to God to ask for God to deal with them justly. Um, This is a, an anger perhaps, but it's fanned not by, not by a a zeal for revenge uh, so much as a zeal for justice. Um, And so it's, you know, in, in many ways, David here is doing exactly what Paul tells us to do. Vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is for the Lord. Turn them over to the Lord, and so, um, so David does this, and it's interesting. Paul himself, um, right around the time um, where he's talking about that, um, he he also actually applies uh, verses 22 and 23 from this section to unbelieving Israel and how God has hardened their heart. And he says, this curse, if you will, this imprecation that David spoke against his enemies has been fulfilled in the Jews uh, who continued to obstinately refuse to believe in jesus as the messiah and so um, in the the broad sense i suppose i think it's fair to say that that these sorts of uh, verses in the the psalms are not to be ignored or downplayed by christians today but understood rightly and applied with with humility and and right understanding Mm.
0: you know i think and I, i know you've got more about this but that the way paul uses it in romans 11 that he describes it as, as being fulfilled in the Jews of his day. And I think that's significant because within that section of Romans, you see, you know, in Romans chapter nine, Paul starts that whole section by saying, If I could cut myself off for the sake of my brothers, I'd do it. You know, if if I could if if I by being cut off could save all of them, I would do it. And and in seeing how he then quotes this imprecatory section within that gives you the, you know, when and it shows the desire, is, is my point, that David, Paul, they're not the, the saints of the, of the scriptures are not making use of these imprecatory psalms because they want to see people burn. But it is, a, as you said very well, that this is David actually putting the vengeance and the justice in the hands of God rather than taking it upon himself. And it's not a desire to actually hurt people, but it is a desire that God would do what is just and right and good.
1: Yes. And David, I mean, to, to pray these Psalms, to pray these types of prayers, it, it requires a great deal of trust in God Mm. because you're praying them from a setting where it doesn't seem justice is flowing and you are praying these prayers, trusting that God is going to do the right thing. A right thing that sometimes um, might not align with our sensibilities or our sense of of justice. But David knows that it does. And Paul, in his love for his people, willing to be written out of the book of life, which by the way, is kind of the climax of this section here is in David's prayer. um, He applies these words to to them. I think that's a really helpful insight. Um, He's not doing so maliciously. He's, He's doing so in ultimately handing that problem of why does why do so many members of the nation of Israel not believe in the Messiah? I, I'm going to hand that over to God
0: for yeah. him to do what is right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's where that section ends then in Romans 11, where he just has this marvelous doxology over the wisdom of God. He does. He he also hands that over to God to let him be the one to work out his own justice and vengeance. So take us into, and I think this will help us get, because you, you said the ultimate question we're going to need to answer is how do we see these words on the lips of Christ? Take us into more specifically what we see in this section. So about verses 22 to, you said the climax is in verse 28. Verses 22 and 28, take us into some of the specifics of what David prays in Psalm 69. And I think that'll help us to see how we see these on the lips of Christ.
1: Yeah, I think you see you see this build, right? Let their own table before them become a snare. So a place of, of hospitality and relaxation and camaraderie becomes... know the opposite. Um, But then let their eyes be darkened. He's already talked about how his eyes have grown dim. Let their eyes be darkened. Make their loins the the seed of strength. Make them tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, those who have been indignant toward me. Um, And then verse 25 is, of course, very significant for for the New Testament. May there can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Uh, This is what Peter cites in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, um, talking about Judas. So as we think about, um, as we kind of build up to talking about Christ having this prayer on his lips, we see that one of the disciples that Jesus said, follow me to, and invited to be in the 12, um, ended up having this fate, and and we see that 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 was God's will through it all. His camp became a desolation. It was, was of course... uh, replaced by Matthias to, to fill that gap. Uh, but we just see these these curses, if you will, these imprecations build to the point where at verse 28 David says, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Um, I mean this could be a reference just to their death, but it seems from the context of all of Scripture to be even more than that. This seems to be referring to to their eternal condemnation. And how could we ever wish that upon anyone? And, and of course, I think that's a, a good transition into how could these prayers possibly be put on the lips of Christ? Um, and I think the answer is that that Christ, of course, being God, um, is the one who is just, is the one who always does what is right. Um, here, this is Jesus as as the one who will judge the living and the dead, um, now we of course have a little bit of a contrast with the way that Jesus treats some of his persecutors. Um, we have Jesus on the cross, and we've already seen so many connections. But we see that Jesus doesn't say to those who are crucifying him these types of um, these types of prayers against them. Rather, his prayer is is that they may be forgiven. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they what they do. Uh, perhaps you know, as we think of Jesus as the judge, what he's doing is um ultimately uh, there are those who are not written in the book of life and i think maybe it's fair to say that that they are those who very much know what they are doing in their persistent obstinate rebellion against the lord and so in the end we see through these types of prayers that that god's justice will prevail that that christ will triumph over all of his enemies that that all that is right will will be preserved and protected and and lifted up, and all that stands against uh, justice and and God's creation and his good will for it uh, will be put to an end. Mm.
0: I I think, too, that we could also say something about—we talked earlier with verse 5 about the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you and how those can be on the lips of Christ because he assumes the sin of the whole world. I, I think maybe something similar could could be said here not to disagree with anything you said but to add to it because I think what you said is very helpful but also to add to it that Christ is the one who bears all the all of that justice of God on the cross you know he takes the wrath of God all upon himself in the place of sinners so that i mean that that does give hope to those who are maybe currently in a state of hardened hearts that in Christ there is yet time, as long as it is today, there is yet time for them to be called away from that. You know, I mean, so I think that there's something to the fact that Christ is the one that receives all these imprecations in our place. I think that's got to be part of our interpretation of these Psalms as well.
1: Well, I I love, there's a a great quote from that Bonhoeffer book I referenced earlier, and um, I think I have it somewhere here. Yeah, Yeah, so this is how he helps us see that the imprecatory Psalms point us to the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, Bonhoeffer writes, God's vengeance did not strike the sinners, but the one sinless man who stood in the sinner's place, namely God's own Son. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God, for the execution of which the psalm prays. Thus, the imprecatory psalm leads to the cross of Jesus and to the love of God which forgives enemies. I cannot forgive the enemies of God out of my own resources. Only the crucified Christ can do that, and I through him. Thus, the carrying out of vengeance becomes grace. For all men in Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, and again, I think that that adds to what you were saying because we do pray for God's justice to be done, and we know that it will be done on the last day. And in that sense, we pray the imprecatory psalms. At the same time, we also pray the imprecatory psalms. Know that knowing that Christ has received that wrath of God in our place now, thus providing grace for these enemies and and for us sinners as well. So both, I think, helpful ways to consider. Imprecatory sections of psalms and imprecatory psalms as a whole. You you talked earlier, Pastor Adams, about turning points within the psalms. It seems like verse twenty nine is a bit of a, a summary verse, and then the psalm has, I think, what you would say is the the major turning point. Help us forward.
1: Yeah, we, we see David referring to himself and his predicament and his prayer, and then talking about the enemies and going back and forth. And so we've just had this section about you know this anger against the wicked ones and then we have you know the same hebrew device here to focus the attention back on david but i am afflicted and in pain just kind of summarizing everything that he's said up to this point let your salvation O god set me on high now one one final plea that kind of brings the entire um, description of david's suffering and what he's asking god to do to its culmination um, and then as we see it, it also just leads us into that that closing praise with which the psalm ends in, in the last seven verses or so. Um, you know, this raised me up to this high and secure place um, is apparently David believes that God um, has done that, is especially going to do that in this particular case. And, and of course, you can't help but think of the cross as we talk about being raised up to a high place. Jesus mm-hmm. was lifted up to draw all men to himself. And we are in a, a secure place because of, of our savior's humiliation and exaltation. And, and that leads us into kind of like maybe Romans nine through 11, this closing yeah. doxology of praise, um, trusting that, that God is going to answer and that, that we will offer up our praise and response and, and that that praise should come in a certain way. Um, and so he says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs." So there's this abrupt change from from all this sorrow and crying out to this is incredibly uplifting praise, um, which is you know a, a quick transition, but that's not uncommon in the Psalms and also made me think of the the quick transition if you will between god has suffered and died on our behalf and is laid in the tomb and a few days later he's he's alive again forever Um, but you know david references the the sacrificial system set up by god um, and yet he acknowledges that like like in psalm 50 and in psalm 51 god doesn't need our sacrifices. God doesn't need a, an ox or a bull, these very expensive sacrifices. Um, and of course, we know that, that Jesus becomes the one sacrifice necessary. And so what God desires is uh, that we would have a, a contrite heart, broken and, and contrite heart, as, as David would write in his great confession in, in Psalm 51. And as a result, um, when the humble see it, when the humble see the, the salvation of God, they will be glad. Uh, you who seek God, let your hearts revive, because the Lord hears the needy; does not despise His own people who are prisoners. Despite everything David's been experiencing, despite um, how he's felt that his life is nearly at an end, the Lord hears the needy. And much like Psalm 22, uh, through after great suffering and, and the description of that, we see we see the light and we see the hope of the resurrection uh, shine forth. Mm. Christ has has given us the victory. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. This this as we were reading it all the way through, this last section is where I really saw those connections to Psalm twenty-two, how it does move from the passion and suffering into resurrection and praise. Take us into that that very last stanza, if you will, verses thirty-four to thirty-six, where the praise now expands beyond David and I mean heaven and earth now are going to praise him.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The the praise goes from from David's heart to praise from the, the host of all of God's creation. Heaven and earth are joining in the song. It of course, has notes of kind of revelation here too and, and the, the grand consummation of all things, when God's justice will be be fully meted out and, and all will be well. And there's an interesting uh, reference here to Zion and the, the cities of Judah. It's led many scholars, even very conservative scholars, to um, draw the conclusion that perhaps this this section was maybe added on to an original prayer of David because, um, uh, Zion wasn't really under attack. Um, arguably the cities of Judah weren't destroyed in, in David's lifetime. You know, I think of Absalom perhaps as, as an explanation, but some would say that this was maybe added on later on, regardless, what, what we can say is that, that God does save his people. God does build up our cities and, um, you know, we we see that happen in Israel's history. And you know, we already had kind of a, a little bit of a connection to Hezekiah and the Assyrians coming up to the neck. And God, of course, rescues them and builds up the cities that they had destroyed. Um, but of course, the ultimate fulfillment is found in in the church, um, in the people of God who have been uh, set free from their prison by by Jesus, our Savior, who suffered all of this for us. And so after a a very dark psalm set to what we can maybe assume is a very beautiful tune. We have a very beautiful, bright ending, Mm. um, ends in this, this wonderful doxology.
0: So with about two minutes left, Pastor Adams, help us to wrap things up on this wonderful psalm, Psalm 69.
1: Yeah, I I think for me, this, this psalm helped me to see um, five things. I think that we are called to do when we find ourselves in a situation like David um, and just following his pattern, I think is, is a very helpful pattern for us to allow prayer to do its work in us. Uh, when we're un- overwhelmed, when, when we feel that we have enemies that outnumber the hairs on our head, when we don't know how to solve our problems, when, when we have pressures that we can't seem to bear up under, uh, David does, as I see it, five things. Uh, he cries out to God and is hurt. Um, as you pointed out earlier, sometimes we think we shouldn't do that. Uh, we ought to, um, David goes to the right place. He's seeking rescue and deliverance from God um, would be the the second aspect of that. David gives over to God uh, his desire for vengeance and trust in him to work justice. And I think we are called to do the same thing. It is for God and and not for us. Uh, And then, of course, at the the very end, David praises God for his salvation. And we ought to do the same thing. Thanksgiving should be on our lips each and every day and then most of all, My kind of point five here is really points everything. Um, We should point and be pointed to the Christ uh, who is the one who suffered injustice for our sake. The book of Hebrews reminds us of that in chapter five. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Um, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I think whoever wrote Hebrews was reading Psalm 22 and 69 that day. Mm,
0: Yeah. yeah. Pastor Caleb Adams is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bend, Oregon, helping us today with Psalm 69. Pastor Adams, thanks for being our guest today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Our Lord has suffered injustice in our place. We trust him to bring about justice, to bring justification for us, to make us his people by his grace. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.